Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Those of you that were hoping for the uh, the bonus episode last Thursday, I know that was planned but life has a very annoying way of interfering at the worst possible times, uh, and law firm stuff kind of cropped up, so that ended up not materializing. So in this episode, we will not be talking about politics, even though there have been some new developments. We're going to skip all of that. We have a full serving of criminal justice fuckery, and then in our Law 140, we're going to talk about the First Amendment rights of students, the ability to protest on school grounds. Uh, Before we get into that, of course, we always have podcast news and updates. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have an episode next Monday. I have not decided that part yet, and the reason why is that this Thursday through Monday, I will be in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, coaching the uh, AAJ trial team for the North Carolina Central University School of Law at a competition down there. So I'm bringing my portable microphone and my headset Uh, to try and record something in my hotel room, if I can do it and it sound decent. Uh, But I don't know if that's going to happen. So what I would suggest, if you want an episode next week, send me questions that you want answered so we can theoretically do a what the fisk if I need to be in studio. So like I'll record a WT fisk just in case. And then if I can do a decent regular episode in Georgia, I will. But if not, we'll still have that backup there. Uh, But if I don't have any questions and I can't find a good way to record, you just won't have anything at all next Monday. So bear that part in mind. Uh, Also, I want to thank everyone who stuck with us last week in the discussion. I know gun control is very, uh, uh, it's a very sensitive topic. I mean, it's kind of like abortion in the sense that you have people that are very adamant in their positions and they're not going to change no matter what and there's no discussion about any of the details in the middle. Uh, so the the feedback on the episode was very strident. Uh, a lot of it was good. I don't want to I don't want to understate that uh, but it was very strident. We had about two dozen people, probably more, but two dozen that I noticed uh, unfollow me on Twitter. Uh, we lost at least one patron, although admittedly I was a bit of an asshole to him. He, uh, he told me that I only needed five rounds for a gun. Anything above that was considered high capacity. I told him I thought he was insane. He responded that he had military experience as a marksman. I told him I didn't care. Uh, so I, I deserved that, surely. Um, but, you know, it, it, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of feedback. You know, some of it was terrible. I mean, within minutes of me posting that I had a weapon on Twitter, uh, like clockwork, someone tweeted, why do I need a semi-automatic gun? Because I deliberately put that it was semi-automatic in the tweet just to see what kind of idiots would respond to that. Uh, and this particular person who did not follow me took the bait, just happened to have seen semi-automatic and decided to respond. And let me, sorry, segue. That's super weird, too. Because some of it is people who retweet me into other folks' timelines, but there's also a lot of people that just search certain keywords on Twitter and just go ahead and respond to tweets that have those keywords in it. And that's really fucking strange. Like, maybe if you're getting paid in Moscow or wherever to troll, that's one thing. But if you're a normal American spending your time on Twitter just randomly responding to keywords, like not hashtags, just plain old keywords, 
that that's kind of weird. Um, but yeah, so that feedback was bad. I had one guy send me an article with a headline that said I bought an AR-15 in five minutes. And then me being a lawyer, I actually clicked and read the article. And you read that he actually didn't buy the AR-15 at all, didn't fill out any of the paperwork, didn't go through the background check, none of that other stuff. I mean, it's like me saying I, I bought a car because I happened to sit in the driver's seat in the car in the showroom. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, but there was some good stuff, too. I mean, I got a uh, I got a message from one of our patrons talking about the use of rifles in rural America uh, to hunt. And we had some discussion on that. We had discussion on magazine capacities. We had discussion on raising the age to purchase certain firearms and how that all breaks down. So there was a lot of good talk. I appreciate it. Those of you that have stuck around, uh, I, I greatly uh, appreciate you continuing to listen and to put up with my opinions, even when you disagree with them. So, okay, let's go ahead and get into what we're doing. If you have not already, please uh, join the conversation online. It mostly happens on Twitter. I know I say online, but all the actions on Twitter these days. Uh, our account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to see some of the shenanigans that happen on my timeline, my personal Twitter account is at Greg underscore Doucette. That is at G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. You can leave us a comment on our website, fiscamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become a patron, we have 77 patrons. We are more than halfway to our goal. Uh, once we get 150, I'm going to start doing episodes twice a week, regardless of what happens at the law firm. You can join at patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. As I mentioned, have no political news. Also have no court news. Uh, in general research news, though, we do have some things. So uh, Christine Ziffritz, um, I'm sure I'm butchering her, butchering her name. Uh, she's a research associate at Manchester Metropolitan University in England. And she writes a piece in the UK Independent regarding her doctoral thesis, where basically she's been studying the impact of teaching philosophy classes to inmates at England's prisons. And as part of these results, uh, you come to find out that actually helps reduce violence in the prison itself. Uh, from her story, it says, quote, The class involved encouraging prisoners to engage in philosophical conversation and philosophical thinking. Rather than teaching them about the history of philosophy, I wanted them to be philosophers, to work together to improve their understanding of the fundamental principles upon which we base our life decisions. Together, the group asked and tried to answer questions like, how should society be organized? What does it mean to live, quote, the good life? And what is morality? Uh, over time, the groups were able to work together to engage in conversation that explored complex questions and develop a shared experience of philosophical exploration and personal reflection. Participants described this dialogue as a break from the drudgery, a form of freedom not found elsewhere in the prison. They appreciated being given the opportunity to be in an educated circle and in an intellectual climate. As with other forms of educational experience in the classroom, they could be, for a short time, philosophers as opposed to offenders or prisoners. And like I said, this helped reduce violence, at least among the small group of people that she was having these classes with, which is actually really interesting. You know, I've said this in, in prior podcasts, how we treat inmates in America is a disgrace. We put people, we deliberately separate them from society as punishment, and that part is fine. But for the overwhelming majority of them, they're going to be released at some point. 
and we need to ensure they're still getting some form of education or exercise. You know, I think of it as exercise, not just physical exercise, but actual mental, intellectual exercise on being a citizen, because once they're released, that's what they're going to become again. And instead, we focus so much on the punishment piece of it that we forget all that stuff. So we're going to give you a link to that in the show notes. For those of you that are new to the podcast, I probably should have mentioned this earlier. I know we have some new people. We have show notes for every episode. You can see the full thing for them at the website, fiscamall.com. But most of your podcast apps will actually have them embedded in the RSS feed that you see. So, for example, if you're on the new version of Apple Podcasts, you can scroll up in the podcast app and you'll see them. Uh, I'm not familiar with the other apps because, frankly, I don't use them. Uh, If you're on the old Apple Podcast app, which was much better, you just tap the cover and you see it. But I'm not in charge of Apple's uh, UI. But just know, all the stuff that I'm going to talk to you about, there will be links to every single thing in the show notes because we document the daylights out of all the stuff we talk about so that you don't have to take my word for any of the things I say. You can go straight to the source. That's the second rule of Fisk, by the way. Go to the source. Uh, All right, out of reason online. Uh, Robbie, see, I'm so bad with names. I don't know if it's Sove or Suave. Uh, Robbie, he's got a piece where he's basically linking to other past pieces, uh, talking about school resource officers, because of course, uh, with the Parkland, Florida shooting that we talked about last week, uh, everyone is talking about SROs and police and safety and whether or not we need more of these people in schools. And Robbie points out, as I have, that that's a fantastically stupid idea putting more police in schools. Uh, So I'm going to narrate for you his text, but just know that the actual text has a boatload of hyperlinks. So pull up the show notes and actually click the links to all of the other stories because Reason likes to document their stuff as well. Uh, Robbie says, Between 1999, the year Columbine happened, and 2005, the Federal Department of Justice gave schools $750 million to hire cops. There's scant evidence that this spending binge made schools any safer, since the school crime rate had already been trending downward. It fell by half between 1992 and 2002, which was consistent with the overall crime drop in the U.S. during the latter half of the 1990s. It's tough to imagine that hiring even more officers to patrol schools would further reduce a form of crime that's already fairly rare. As Reason's Nick Gillespie, he's the editor, noted last night, Mass shootings have not been getting more common, though they have been getting more deadly. This is especially true when, as in Florida yesterday, the existing security measures failed so dramatically. I don't just mean SROs. Metal detectors aren't nearly as effective as one might expect. Meanwhile, whatever benefits those measures bring come with ugly trade-offs. The ubiquitous presence of law enforcement in public schools has led to serious infringements of students' Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights, and it has increased the likelihood that minor disputes between students will escalate into criminal justice issues. I've covered case after case of teenagers arrested on child porn charges because they swapped sexually suggestive text messages with other students, something that shouldn't even be a crime, but which often ends up in police hands because teachers and principals defer to SROs in such matters. More broadly, the increased police presence in schools is directly related to the rise of zero tolerance and the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. So he's got a lot more there, but that's a good chunk of it. And I want to point out, he covers stuff about the dumb sexting cases. I cover things like SROs beating the shit out of students, 
ripping kids out of chairs, flinging them across the room, body slamming them, choking them out, fucking them, frankly, raping them, I guess would be the more appropriate terminology. Uh, And we're going to cover some of that in North Carolina because we have something happening right here in Durham. But just know it's time to end SROs. And I'm going to get to that later on. But we need to get police out of our schools. Uh, In state by state news. Now, I got to forewarn you. Some of this stuff is is fucking graphic. And I, I say that as a guy who narrates graphic, disgusting shit every single week. But some of the stuff, even to me, including this very first story, I was just like, ugh. So we're going to start in Alabama. Uh, In Birmingham, they tried to execute a guy who was on death row, and they just, they fucked it up so egregiously that like, my nuts hurt thinking about it, all right? And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why. So this is just a, a, it's essentially a press release, but it covers a lot of factual information from Columbia Law School, who happens to be pointing out that this execution that was scheduled to take place should not have taken place. Uh, It says, quote, on Thursday night, February 22nd of 2018, the state of Alabama attempted to execute Doyle Lee Ham, a 61-year-old man who has lymphatic cancer and carcinoma and who has been on death row for 30 years. For months, his lawyer and a professor of law, Bernard E. Harcourt, had argued to the federal courts and the governor of Alabama that any attempt to perform lethal intravenous injection on Ham would constitute cruel and unusual punishment because of his compromised veins. Immediately following, so basically they petitioned a district court and then court of appeals and then a Supreme Court to stay the execution. The Supreme Court denied and said he can go ahead and the execution can go forward. The story continues, quote, Immediately following the denial of stay by the Supreme Court, Alabama began its execution protocol. According to Harcourt, the attorney, Ham was taken into the execution chamber and strapped onto the lethal injection gurney. Two members of the IV execution team entered the death chamber and immediately began to work on Ham below his knees on both the left and right sides. The two members of the IV execution team worked at the same time, each taking one side of Doyle Ham's body in an attempt to find a vein anywhere in his lower extremities for peripheral venous access. The IV execution team inserted needles multiple times on his left and right legs and ankles, each time forcing the needles into his lower extremities. And I just, just thinking about that, just, I don't like needles. Uh, According to the lawyer, at one point, the IV execution team turned Ham over onto his stomach on the gurney, slapping the back of his legs to try to generate a vein. After multiple repeated attempts, the IV execution personnel stated out loud that they could not, quote, get anything. With peripheral access unavailable, other IV execution personnel next attempted central venous access through Ham's right groin. Multiple times, they tried to insert a catheter into Ham's right groin, causing severe bleeding and pain. The execution was ultimately called off at approximately 11.27 p.m. Basically, they took so long, fucking it up so long, that the period of time that you have to execute somebody expired. It's called a death warrant. The death warrant expired. Uh, So after the execution was called off, however, even after, the IV execution personnel suggested continuing with central venous access in the groin or trying elsewhere on his lower extremities. They really wanted to kill this guy. They get their jollies off of it. The commissioner of the Alabama Department of Corrections, Jefferson Dunn, admitted that the execution team had not been able to achieve venous access, but did not think that was a problem. Ham woke up on Friday bruised, 
punctured and limping from the attempted execution. Harcourt visited with Ham on Friday afternoon and says that he was limping badly and terribly sore, especially in the groin area. Uh, So for folks, well, if you don't know what the groin area is, it's where your man parts are, that entire muscular region. Um, it's, It's very painful when that gets injured. So like I injured my groin muscle uh, probably back in October and it's now February and it still hurts, <laughs> you know? So four months later, it's still not fully healed. Um, so that just, just thinking about that, just ugh, that and needles and ugh. so that's Alabama, Alabama fuck shit up. Uh, in Monroe County, Alabama, uh, some small town sheriffs have been stealing money allocated for inmate meals at the prison and they claim that it's totally legal. Uh, and that way, <laughs> I want you to pay attention to the dollar amount because this is a very small town with like 10,000 people in it. Uh, Between 2014 and 2016, the sheriff of one Alabama county pocketed more than $110,000 worth of subquote excess taxpayer dollars his office received to feed inmates in the county jail that he oversees. Uh, the sheriff contends that he's not breaking the law by taking thousands of federal, state, and municipal tax dollars that they receive as allocations to feed the inmates. The sheriff says that he's following the letter of a longstanding Alabama state law that they believe, anyway, allows him to keep any funds designated to feed county jail inmates that do not end up being used for that purpose. So that's how you do it. You, you have money set aside for meals, and then you either don't feed them or you give them really shitty food to have a surplus left over in the budget that this guy puts into his own pocket. Holy shit, Alabama's corrupt. Good Lord. Um, so that's in Alabama. Out of Arizona, in Mesa, the police beat the everlasting shit out of an 84-year-old woman to, quote, help her. Uh, this all came about from a Facebook post made by the woman's granddaughter, basically that she was uh, claiming that the woman was being gripped so tight by the police that like her arm skin just like sloughed off. It just kind of came off. Um, So from the story, it says, quote, in an interview with 12 News, the local affiliate there, uh, the woman who asked to be identified as Virginia said she had been standing with an officer talking on the passenger side of his vehicle. Apparently there had been a alleged call that a male had a gun and was threatening to commit suicide. When the police went to the door, she answered, came out, and was talking to the officer by the car. Uh, When the officer quickly grabbed her arm, peeling back her skin, she reacted by attempting to remove his fingertips from her wrist. Virginia says the next thing she remembers is waking up on the ground because the officer body slammed her. Police confirmed the Facebook post was related to an emergency call on a Wednesday. Officers said they were told the person that was suicidal was a man in a vehicle in front of a home. Police said upon arrival, officers claimed they saw a man matching the description exiting the vehicle and going toward the home where they lost sight of him. According to police, officers made announcements toward the residence when an elderly woman came to the door and stepped out. Virginia complied with the officer's commands to walk toward them. Once she was near, they explained she appeared to show confusion, quote-unquote, and attempted to return into the home. Police said in order to keep her out of harm's way, a use-of-force incident occurred with the female who was injured. Now, what's missing from all of this story is this supposed male who was allegedly in a vehicle in the driveway. They never actually found him because he wasn't actually there. And instead, to help this woman... 
she got injured, or to put, to put it in police speak, in order to keep her out of harm's way, a use of force incident occurred. Come on. Just, it, like I said, you know, I, we've said this before about uh, the woman in Texas who was shot and killed and they killed the six-year-old boy in the process because they were supposedly trying to protect the family. If this is the type of treatment that you can expect when you call the police for protection, just, just fucking stay away. All right, let me go get my Smith & Wesson 9mm. Don't come here if you're going to injure me and then pretend that it was for my own benefit. Uh, over in Arkansas, in Little Rock, uh, former Judge Joseph Beckman has been sentenced to the max because he traded uh, judicial leniency in exchange for nude photographs from young male defendants. So we actually we talked about this guy back in October in episode 31. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Joseph Beckman, a former Arkansas judge who admitted he granted more lenient sentences to young defendants in exchange for sexual favors, has been sentenced to the statutory maximum prison term of five years. They actually, the, uh, the defense attorney and the U.S. attorney were fine with him getting two years and it being on house arrest. And the judge was so disgusted that she actually maxed him out and said, no, that was not good enough. Uh, but the crazy part is when you go through the story, there was a uh, hearing on uh, evidence that was being admitted as part of the sentencing process. So with like federal prosecutions, you have – if you end up pleading, you have the plea. That takes place first, and then you're released for a period of time. You're on, on supervision, so you're on probation basically, federal probation. Um, during that time period – the probation office actually compiles a sentencing report where they interview you, your family, your victims, everything else. They compile everything about your life. And then in that sentencing report, they basically sum everything up for the judge. What happened? Who are you as a person? What sentencing guidelines apply? What is the recommended sentence and all of that other stuff? Well, as part of the process for that, evidence can actually be admitted in court to be taken into account for the sentencing. And from the story, it says, quote, two special agents with the FBI testified amid objections from the judge's defense attorney. Those objections included arguments about the admissibility of a similar misconduct investigation that occurred in the 1990s when the judge was a deputy prosecutor. So basically, this guy's a repeat offender and has gotten away with it for years because he was a DA and a judge, and people look the other way when you happen to have the reins of power in your hands. Uh, it's out of Arkansas in California. In Los Angeles, uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Deputy Giancarlo Scotti has been indicted for assaulting six inmates at a prison that he happened to work at. Uh, it says, or the jail, rather. Sorry, let me make sure my terminology is correct. So, again, for new folks, jail is anywhere you stay for a punishment up to a year prison is anything you stay where your sentence is going to be for a year or more. And there's some blur there because, frankly, prisons are so overcrowded that sometimes you'll have prison inmates staying in the jail because there's just not room for them. But typically think of it as a one-year time frame. If you're going to be at an extended stay, you go to the prison in a nutshell. Uh, so from the story, it says, quote, in November... The sheriff's department said investigators had interviewed 150 witnesses and presented a case to prosecutors a month earlier that involved three victims. Since then, investigators identified three additional victims. For example, a pregnant inmate was changing inside her cell when he approached, he is uh, Giancarlo Scotti here, when he approached and ordered her to expose her genitals to him. Scotty then opened his pants and ordered her to get on her knees and give him a blowjob. It doesn't actually say that, it says perform fellatio, but 
you know, I, I don't use the legal terms for some of this stuff. Uh, Scotty also sexually assaulted another inmate in the shower area of the jail before his arrest. That inmate saved some of Scotty's semen on a piece of tissue paper and then provided that to investigators. Uh, but both women, when they reported him, were then retaliated against by jail staff. Uh, in the case of the woman who saved the tissue paper, she was restricted from drug and mental health counseling after reporting the abuse. And for the woman who was pregnant, she was denied special meals that were reserved for pregnant women because you're eating for two, basically. Uh, so yet another entry in the lengthy catalog of how utterly fucked up America's prison system is, jail system, or both, how we incarcerate people. Uh, in the District of Columbia, uh, Jessica Ford, this is a recent thing. So a white woman from Laverne, Tennessee, you may have seen this, decided to uh, put the White House on lockdown during the ceremony for Billy Graham. So Billy Graham, pastor of North Carolina, died this past week. There was a uh, reception, observance, whatever you call those things, at the White House in his honor. And this woman decided to hit the security barrier outside of the White House with her vehicle. She had a white Chevy van, hit the barricade at 17th Street Northwest and East Street Northwest. Officials said the vehicle did not breach the barrier. It was stopped, but she struck the barrier and had a gun in her hand at the time. Uh, after the vehicle was stuck at the barrier, she continued to try to accelerate it to try and get through the barrier. As officers approach her and see the gun and ultimately like pulled her out of the driver's side window. Now, here's the thing. Those of you that have long memories may remember that Miriam Carey in 2013 just made a U-turn at a checkpoint outside of the White House, and she was shot five times from behind and killed as her baby was in the back seat of the vehicle. The police then claimed that she rammed the White House barrier, and that was the reason for the use of force, but subsequent investigations showed that that was not the case. I have no doubt that you will be shocked to learn that Miriam Carey was black, whereas the woman here who was taken alive despite having a gun on her happened to be white. Uh, in Florida, all the Florida news relates to the stuff at Parkland, Broward County. Uh, basically, the... <laughs> God... So as more coverage of what went wrong has gone on, what we've learned is that four different deputies with the Broward County Sheriff's Office hid in the parking lot as kids were being gunned down inside the school. They didn't go in. They didn't try to intervene. They hid outside like cowards waiting for I don't know what because, I mean, you wait for backup. Well, when one officer's there, what the fuck are the other three officers doing? You know, the entire point Wait, hang on, let me just give you the story. This is the type of stuff that pisses me off. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, not one, but four sheriff's deputies hid behind cars instead of storming Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida during Wednesday's school shooting, police claimed on Friday. As newly released records revealed, the Broward County Sheriff's Office had received at least 18 calls about the troubled teen over the past decade, and the shooter himself called police before he shot the place up, and they still didn't respond. Uh, continue sources from Coral Springs, Florida Police Department tell CNN that when its officers arrived on the scene Wednesday, they were shocked to find three deputies behind their cars with their weapons drawn. Now, look, it, and on top of that, it gets worse because they actually blocked EMS from going in because EMS arrived and they had no guns and they're like, fuck it, we'll risk getting shot. We want to help the people that are bleeding out. And the deputies with guns and body armor were like, oh, no, can't do that. Got to wait. 
you know, we, we started putting school resource officers in schools after Columbine. You know, Robbie's piece mentioned that. And nearly 20 years later, they have not stopped a single school shooting out of any of them that have happened. An SRO has not stopped a single school shooting. What they have done is arrest tens of thousands of students and put them into the adult penal system. They have raped dozens of schoolgirls having sex with them, as we call it, because we like to try and pretend that it's nicer when it's quote-unquote consensual when you're a guy in your fucking 30s or 40s having sex with a preteen. You know, and we've got God knows how many videos of them beating kids. So you're spending all of this money that you could reallocate to raising teacher pay or improving the actual environment in the school or God knows whatever else. You're paying all of this money for police who don't do what we have hired them to do and in the process bring a lot of negative collateral consequences. You know, it is time to end school resource officers. We should not have police in schools. Go back to how it was when I was growing up, where if there was a law violation, you called 911, and you got the same normal response time as everyone else. But focus on actually improving the educational environment instead of finding new ways to make schools more like prisons. Uh, So also out of Broward County, the sheriff, as people have been looking into his stuff, uh, they've been finding that he's a rather unsavory character as well. For example, uh, he spent a lot of money terrorizing minorities. And now he's a Democrat, by the way, so I don't assume that he's a Republican. This guy's a Democrat. He's got a selfie with Hillary Clinton and everything else. But he spent a lot of time and energy terrorizing black folks. Uh, For example, there's a story about their VIPER unit, which is an acronym for Violent Intervention Proactive Enforcement Response. Uh, Basically, this guy, when he was running for re-election, he would tout the VIPER unit, uh, saying that, quote, it uses intelligence-led policing and helps us zero in on not only illegal weapons, but also on criminals with a history of the violent use of weapons. With better intelligence on offenders and potential offenses, we have been able to target the 6% of criminals that commit approximately 65% of all violent crime. Uh, well, what ended up happening is they actually give you the story of Louis Hilaire, uh, who basically had gotten out of prison was trying to turn his life around when his ex-girlfriend contacted him completely out of the blue and said, hey, let's you know go have dinner. They have dinner, movies, have sex. And then the girlfriend's like, hey, I want you to come rob this hotel with me. And the guy's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm a felon. I'm trying to turn my life around whatever else. And she starts begging him, you know, saying, please, please, please help me out. I really need you to help me out, et cetera, et cetera. So finally he agrees because this is a guy who is, is, it's his ex asking him, his dick has been inside of her fairly recently, and he agrees, and in the process comes to find out she's a confidential informant. She was setting him up, and he got to the hotel, the hotel staff were confidential, they weren't confidential informants, they were actual police employees, so the hotel maid gave him information on how to crack the safe, the maid actually worked for the police department, and this guy's going to prison again even though he was rebuffing the entire request to come rob the hotel in the first place. Uh, we also found out that the sheriff was deliberately targeting a, a place called Club Cinema. Any night where they would have a hip-hop act there, so they had assorted com- uh, comedians and music stuff, whenever there was a hip-hop act there, the sheriff would have his people raid the place to try and see if they could find people with drugs or whatever else. 
So it, it's and it's worse. Like there's more stuff there, but it was just so much old shit that I didn't feel like sifting through all of it. Safe to say, uh, Sheriff Scott Israel, Democrat from Broward County, Florida, is not good news. Uh, and actually, a guy on Twitter, he's at Torian Gray, tweeted out, "Quote: Instead of an active shooter, try telling police there's an unarmed black guy in the school selling Lucy's." He's not wrong, y'all. All right, in Idaho. Another entry in the Politicians Behaving Badly department. We have a, a first rule of FISC, but for politicians. So the first rule of FISC is police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. That apparently applies to Republican Senator Dan Foreman. So the, uh, the University of Idaho is in Moscow, Idaho. I did not know we had a Moscow in America, but just know it's there. Uh, and college students were going to the state legislature in Boise to talk about birth control. Uh, And essentially, Dan Foreman, who is the state senator representing Moscow, uh, totally lost his shit, even as people are recording on their mobile phones. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, the students who had traveled nearly 300 miles from the Moscow campus to participate in a Boise lobbying event were trying to schedule a meeting with Foreman. The Republican canceled at the last minute. So students left him a note and condoms in his office before moving on to other scheduled meetings. The students and foreman passed in a hallway. He emphatically refused to speak with them in an exchange that several people recorded on camera. Abortion is murder. I stand against it, foreman says in the clip. I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm a conservative Republican. I think what you guys do stinks. The next time you walk in my office, you're going to be dealing with ISP, the Idaho State Police. Now, the weird part about it is that they weren't actually there to talk about abortion. They were there to talk about birth control. There was a bill pending that would have allowed women to receive up to a 12-month supply of birth control and to promote better sex education on college campuses. Now, I've talked about this in a podcast before. I'm pro-life. I I make no bones about that. But I also recognize that abortion is legal, and that's not going to change. So from my standpoint of someone who is pro-life, if I wanted fewer abortions— The way to do that is to have fewer pregnancies, and then the pregnancies that you do have, you provide support to the potential mother so that she's not faced with having to make that decision. That's essentially how that works. If you want fewer aborted babies, you need to have fewer pregnancies. So this guy, Dan Foreman, is a fucking nut job, and I'm actually surprised. Well, I'm not going to say I'm surprised, Um, but this is not how you're supposed to treat citizens even when you disagree with them, and yet this guy is a state legislator. Uh, In Illinois, out of Aurora, this is a, God. Uh, So Aurora Police Department has a guy named uh, Daniel Wagner who put video cameras in his ex-wife's home to spy on her. That's That's the background for the story. And he was fired, as he should be. Rare thing when that happens. Well, as part of that, of course, he appealed his termination And the Aurora Police Department Police Union says that he shouldn't have been fired. He should have only been suspended at best for spying on his ex-wife. And a supposedly independent arbitrator agreed. Uh, So from the story, it says, quote, An Aurora police officer who was fired for secretly installing cameras he later used to spy on his ex-wife should get his job back, according to a court document filed by the police union. An independent arbitrator ruled that Daniel Wagner should have only been suspended for one year over the cameras, which included one in his ex-wife's bedroom. Wagner admitted to installing video cameras inside the ex-wife's Sugar Grove home. 
He installed the cameras while their divorce was pending. He then activated them after the divorce was finalized and continued to monitor his ex-wife in her home without her knowledge, according to court documents. The cameras transmitted video and audio to the website of the manufacturer, Nest, and could be accessed remotely. Court records state Wagner looked at the video daily, accessing it from devices including his city-issued phone. And in an October arbitration hearing, the city maintained that any sanction short of termination would violate public policy because we don't really want police spying on people in their private time. Uh, though the arbitrator found Wagner guilty of the accusations, which, again, he admitted, uh, the arbitrator also determined, quote, termination may be too harsh a remedy and ordered a one-year suspension with Wagner scheduled to return to work this month. Holy shit. Uh, Illinois is a mess as well. Uh, out of Maryland, it wouldn't be a podcast without talk about the Gun Trace Task Force. Uh, Daniel Hersel and Marcus Taylor have been found guilty by a federal jury of racketeering, racketeering conspiracy, and robbery. They were acquitted on a minor charge of possession of a firearm and furtherance of a crime of violence, but they were convicted on the rest, so they're going to be seeing some prison time. From the story, it says, quote, jurors deliberated for about 12 hours over two days before rendering their verdict. In a case where the officer's victims were black men, the jury of mostly white women elected a young black man to deliver the verdict. Good for them. So those of you who aren't familiar with the Gun Trace Task Force, go uh, go check out the show notes. We've talked about these guys on almost a dozen podcasts now. It is the origin of the fourth rule of Fisk. The Wire was a documentary because some of the stuff they did was just so outlandishly crazy, ridiculous. Uh, robbing citizens blind, you know, arresting people willy-nilly for sport, it, recruiting other police and other jurisdictions to sell drugs that they took from drug dealers and then splitting the cash. Like there's, there's so much, Oh, and they killed a police officer. Um, there's so much stuff there. Like it's, it's insane, but go through some of the past podcasts to listen to them. That is out of Maryland. Uh, also I don't have it in the show notes because I can't get a good link just yet. Uh, the one I had, I'm, I'm blocked from seeing it at the moment. Um, but apparently there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cases that the district attorney, uh, Marilyn Mosby, has identified as potentially being compromised because of the actions of these officers. So there are going to be a lot of verdicts thrown out eventually. Uh, in Minnesota, out of Minneapolis, there is a new uh, research data analysis done by folks at St. Catherine University that finds that Native American women are being disproportionately targeted by police. From the story, it says, quote, American Indian women in Minneapolis were stopped, searched, and arrested at higher rates last year than any other demographic group, including black men. And while citywide, a majority of police stops were for traffic violations, American Indians were mostly stopped on the basis of being, subquote, suspicious persons. Whatever the fuck that is. If you, if you happen to be Native American, you look suspicious, apparently. Uh, it continues, the report's conclusions were based on police stop and arrest data from November 2016 to October 2017 and figures from the American Community Survey. Perhaps most surprising is that Native American women are stopped at a higher rate than black men, whose treatment by law enforcement nationwide has incited a debate about how police patrol minority communities. 
Nearly half of police stops of men are of blacks who make up about 20% of the population, which gives you a ratio of roughly 2.55. In the case of Native American women, it was six point something. I don't have the actual number, but it was six and up. So just this obscene actual rate of pulling people over. Uh, American Indians in general were also more likely than any other group to be searched by police, appearing to back up earlier studies showing racial disparities in police practices. So that's out of Minnesota. In Missouri, we've got three different cases in Missouri, none of them good. Uh, Chris McDaniel of BuzzFeed. Well, it depends. Sorry, let me back up. What is constitutes good depends on your perspective. Some of this is good that it's being exposed, but the underlying stuff is disturbing. Uh, Chris McDaniel of BuzzFeed has an expose on where the state gets its drugs for lethal injections, and it turns out they're sourced from a company that uses shady-ass practices. And this is a long expose. I'm not going to give you all of it because it's a long read. It took me several minutes to get through it. But the opening segments say, quote, The state of Missouri has engaged in a wide-ranging scheme involving code names and envelopes stuffed with cash. Yes, you heard that right. Envelopes stuffed with cash to hide the fact that it paid a troubled pharmacy for the drugs it uses to execute inmates. Procuring execution drugs has become almost impossible as major pharmaceutical companies stop making them or refuse to provide them for capital punishment. Missouri itself faced a crisis, and I put that in air quotes, in early 2014 when the previous pharmacy it had been using was exposed in the press and stopped providing the state with drugs. Scrambling, Missouri found a new pharmacy and stockpiled the lethal injection drug pentobarbital, enabling it to set a record pace for executions, scheduling one a month for more than a year. To hide the identity of the new pharmacy, the state has taken extraordinary steps. It uses a code name for the pharmacy and all official documents. Only a handful of state employees know the real name. The state fought at least six lawsuits to stop death row inmates and the press from knowing the pharmacy's identity. Even the way Missouri buys and collects the drugs is cloak and dagger. The state sends a high-ranking corrections officer to a clandestine meeting with a company representative, exchanging an envelope full of cash for vials of pentobarbital. How much cash are we talking about? Since 2014, Missouri has spent more than 135000 in these drug deals. Wow. Uh, out of St. Louis, Governor Greitens, and I, I hate this story because we actually talked about this guy before, um, back in episode 24, where he delayed an execution because he, you know, it was a compromised case, and he actually stood up and did something that you don't often see from Republican governors. And I actually had, you know, decent feelings about this guy. I thought he was going to be good people. Uh, well, come to find out, he's been indicted for felony invasion of privacy. From the story, it says, quote, Governor Eric Greitens of Missouri was indicted on Thursday on a felony invasion of privacy charge, threatening his hold on the leadership of the state and creating chaos across Missouri's political landscape in an election year. The grand jury's indictment accused him of photographing a nude or partially nude person without the person's knowledge or consent. Basically, he was having an affair and he took pictures of the woman he was having an affair with and basically said that if she exposed him, he was going to release the pictures to the public. Basically, revenge porn in a nutshell. Uh, The charges come weeks after he acknowledged having the extramarital affair in 2015, but he denied reports that he blackmailed the woman or took a nude photo of her without permission. Uh, That's not going to go over well. 
I've seen these cases in my capacity as a criminal defense attorney. Uh, Some of it is he said, she said on the coercion part, but if he's got nudes of someone that he's sending to someone else, he's toast. Uh, Also in St. Louis, St. Louis police officer John Stewart has been charged with sodomizing a pregnant woman. This must be a thing, because like the guy in California was doing this to a pregnant woman as well. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, the unidentified victim called police because her car had been stolen from her home about 10 p.m. on June 12th of 2015. The woman was six months pregnant at the time. Officer John Stewart responded in uniform and in a marked police car. The victim said that she and Stewart discussed her stolen car while he was standing outside the doorway to her apartment. After the defendant concluded his official duties as a police officer, he requested to enter the apartment. He then began complimenting the victim's physical appearance. You can already see where this is going. Uh, The woman said that she refused to let him touch her, but then he exposed himself to her and basically said that uh, she better give him a blowjob or else. Uh, She says, quote, I did not consent to the defendant's sexual advances, but ultimately complied as I was in fear of serious physical injury to myself and my children who were present at the time. The kids were upstairs. Uh, The victim preserved some of the evidence following the assault, and the crime lab later confirmed the presence of Stewart's DNA on her clothes and on a cup. Uh, so sources confirmed, and this is God, this is it, it just gets worse. Sources confirmed to the paper that the officer resigned from the police department less than a week after the allegation surfaced. So internal affairs never even started an investigation. They just said, "Ah, eh, fuck it, we're going to pretend this didn't happen because he quit. It's not our problem." So that was your news in Missouri, out of New York, in New York City. Uh, AM New York has a story on people who have been illegally parking on private property by abusing parking placards. Now, you will never guess who's responsible. From the story, it says, quote, Despite an uptick in ticketing during Mayor Bill de Blasio's placard crackdown, city-issued parking permit owners are still empowered to illegally park in dangerous ways throughout the city. In St. George, Staten Island, police officers at the 120th Precinct and workers reporting to the municipal buildings and court offices parked sedans and SUVs on busy sidewalks, in crosswalks, blocking fire hydrants and bus stops. Most often, there are city-issued placards in their windshields. But on a recent morning, a handwritten note was enough to give a free pass to a sedan blocking a crosswalk at the corner of Richmond Terrace and Hamilton Avenue. Edward Ortez and his wife, Vincenza, unwillingly run what is essentially a privately owned free parking lot for those workers. Over the years, they've been harassed and ignored by the city as they've tried to keep placard-carrying drivers from parking on their property. By the time the mayor announced a crackdown, they had already given up, and nothing has changed since. Quote, we tried to correct it a few times over the years, but most are cops. Cops to cops, they won't give tickets. Uh, Also out of New York City, uh, killer cop Hugh Barry with the New York Police Department has been found not guilty of his summary extrajudicial execution of 66-year-old black woman Deborah Danner. This was the elderly black lady who got woken up because of a drug raid on the place where she was living. They were trying to arrest her son. Uh, They woke her up out of her sleep, so she grabbed a bat And she's sitting there in her bedroom with the bat, not really doing anything with it, just holding it just in case. And rather than being a man who theoretically has some form of physical strength over this 66-year-old woman and taking the bat from her, uh, Barry decided to just shoot her and claimed at the trial that she was swinging the bat at him and he feared for his life. And the crazy part is 
His partner, who was standing right next to him when he shot this woman dead, took the stand and testified that she never swung the bat, that everything Hugh Berry said was a flat-out fucking lie, and the jury found him not guilty anyway. Uh, so that's out of New York. In North Carolina, we got one, two, three, four, five stories. Uh, so we have the first rule of Fisk, audio edition. Uh, a prison administrator was recorded on audio admitting that in North Carolina they would ignore abuses in the prisons because, quote, we're all buddies. From the story, it says, quote, as North Carolina's prison leaders were pledging sweeping reforms to improve workplace safety, this was after several guards had been killed by inmates, a group of central administrators convened a meeting with a group of staff in mid-December to discuss ending a program that helps mentor corrections officers. The meeting was led by Melanie Wood, a business systems analyst and the prison administration's human resources officer. We live or die by policy. Sometimes we die by our own policies because we don't follow them. Wood said, we have policy, and then we have what we really do, and that's not good. It needs to all match. Wood went on to explain the need for an internal group of dedicated safety auditors because under the current system, audit teams routinely overlook problems to benefit their friends. You and I both know when I go to your facility or when you go to my facility to look at issues, we take a cursory glance because we don't want to hurt our buddy's feelings. And that's all well and good, but we really need honest input. We've been auditing each other's facilities for years, and we know that we have just, I'll overlook this, you overlook that. We all do it because we're all buddies. We look after each other. That's what we do. Uh, so that's how we run our prison system. Out of Cary, uh, ICE has detained and deported a Giles Bikindu back to the Congo. So this guy, he's been in the country for 14 years, has no criminal record. He is dying of HIV. And the uh, federal immigration folks decided that, yeah, we just want to go ahead and get rid of him. Let's condemn him to die in the Congo. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Federal immigration officials roused Giles Bikindu of Kerry from his sleep in a holding cell in Atlanta on Friday, shattered his dream of staying in the United States. By 8 o'clock in the morning, he was arriving in Washington on a flight from Atlanta, and by 10 o'clock, he was on a plane for Ethiopia, where he would then have a 90-minute layover before taking the last leg of his journey uh, to the Republic of Congo. Bikindu is a native of Congo who came to the United States in 2004, planning to attend college. Once he got here, the he ended up running afoul of the Congolese, I guess it's Congolese, the Congolese government's um, government, because apparently there was some type of atrocities taking place that he knew about, and rather than lie about them, he said, hey, these atrocities are going on. Uh, so the Congo government basically said, oh, I can't wait till you get back here, we're going to kill you. So the guy's been here for 14 years ever since. And now that we have Donald J. Trump, our beloved Papaya POTUS in office, they decided that we're just going to go ahead and send him back. You know, so I, I bring this up because you've heard several of these stories over the past few weeks, and it should be a reminder. When the president tells you that ICE is deporting bad people, the bad hombres, I want you to know that he's lying to you. That's not actually happening. What they're doing is they're finding the low-hanging fruit. They're finding these people who have voluntarily checked in with ICE every month for years on end, hoping that they will get to stay. And because they're coming to ICE, they're easy to find, detain, and deport. They're deporting people who we should want as future citizens of this country instead of people who are actually threats to what's going on. 
uh, out of Charlotte, Ramona Brandt has passed away. I don't know if y'all know her, but this was the woman who, back in 1995, she was dating a drug dealer, had never had any priors at all of any kind, and got sentenced to life in prison. When they busted her boyfriend, they charged her with conspiracy to sell drugs, and there was so much weight involved that under the sentencing guidelines, she got sentenced to life. Uh, So she served 21 years, and then back in 2016, President Obama commuted her sentence and she was released. So over the past year and a half, she really focused a lot on reentry and trying to make sure that people who spent their time in prison were able to be productive when they got out. Uh, We don't have any information on how she died, but she passed away this, uh, this past week. In Durham, North Carolina, got a couple stories here. Uh, all charges have been dismissed against the Patriots who happened to take down the participation trophy to Confederate traders that was across the street from my office. Uh, y'all might remember back in August, episode 23, where I talked to you about the events of that day, and then we had a Law 140 about the charges that all these people were charged with. And I told you in that Law 140 that the charges were going to get dismissed. And here's actually what happened. Uh, So basically three of the protesters out of the group of everyone that the the sheriff's office charged. So the sheriff just charged every fucking buddy and charged them with uh, felony rioting, felony inciting a riot, misdemeanor destruction of property, some other random bullshit I can't recall. Well, three of them finally got to the point where they were going to trial. And there was a, essentially they were setting up what would have been a jury nullification defense of sorts, arguing that the because the Confederates committed treason against the country, frankly, that having taxpayer-funded monuments to them on government property uh, was infringing on constitutional rights and that we were able to take them down because we were basically helping to purify uh, our country of participation trophies to traitors. In a nutshell, that was the gist of the argument going forth the trial. Well, it ended up the first two got acquitted because of a lack of evidence. The state actually couldn't prove that they were involved in this conspiracy that they were all charged with. And then the third one went all the way to the verdict and the judge found him not guilty. So our district attorney, Roger Eccles, who I think very highly of, he does a very good job Uh, dismissed the rest of the charges. From the story by Monique Judge in The Root, it says, quote, "Uh, Eccles told the Durham Herald Sun that his office had presented all the evidence it had, and since it would have used that same evidence against the five remaining defendants, it made no sense to continue to prosecute the cases. For my office to continue to take these cases to trial based on the same evidence would be a misuse of state resources, Eccles said. Absolutely, because what happened here is that rather than investigate and compile evidence and something that would have to be presented at trial to convict these people, Sheriff Mike Andrews and his team just focused on slapping the charges on them. He actually had this press conference that I talked about where he was you know, basically doing a little saber-rattling thing, talking about he's going to charge them with felonies, because the plan was to hit these people with the collateral consequences of arrest. That was the whole reason it happened. There was no conceivable way they were going to convict these folks of the felonies. It just wasn't going to happen. You can go listen to that Law 140 in August where I break down the law. It was not humanly possible under the law. But the instant that you're charged, your mugshot ends up on the internet. You end up with a record showing that you've been charged in the past. You have to go through this extra effort to get it expunged. So that was the goal. So now you have dozens of people who between them have been charged with dozens upon dozens of charges. And every single one 
has been thrown out in some form or another, either dismissed by the DA or dismissed by the court or gone to trial and been found not guilty. It is a total waste of money that we even went through this. And I'm beyond disappointed in our sheriff. I hope whoever runs against him this year happens to win because how he has handled this incident, the parade I talked to you all about a couple weeks ago, all this other stuff has just been mind-bogglingly incompetent. Uh, Speaking of the Durham County Sheriff's Office, a former deputy, Christopher Kelly, a school resource officer, uh, pled guilty to sexual, well, he didn't plead guilty to having sex with the 14-year-old girl. He pled guilty to related charges as part of a plea. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, a former Durham County Sheriff's deputy pleaded guilty Tuesday to charges related to his relationship with an underage girl. Look at that phrasing. This guy groomed a 14-year-old and fucked her at some point. It's statutory rape, but the paper phrases it as relationship with an underage girl. Uh, Christopher Kelly worked as a school resource officer at Hillside and Northern High Schools and acted as a mentor, putting that in air quotes, to a 14-year-old girl before their relationship, also putting that in air quotes, turned sexual. Kelly pleaded guilty to three felony charges, indecent liberties with a minor, indecent liberties with a student, and second-degree kidnapping. Now, you got to imagine, if the sheriff's office put as much time and money into training their deputies not to statutorily rape school kids as they did trying to prosecute these Confederate monument folks, we might have a better situation here in Durham. Uh, So this is stories out of North Carolina and Pennsylvania, out of Philly. Uh, New District Attorney Larry Krasner's office has changed the guidelines on what prosecutors will ask for as part of bail. And now district attorneys will not seek cash bail at all for a whole bunch of low-level offenses, including, among other things, uh, possession of weed, possession of drug paraphernalia, resisting arrest, and many, many, many more. Uh, in the story, his, a quote from him, he says, quote, we can not only try to make things better going forward, but also we can try to address the population in jail now. I can't tell you how awesome it is to have a civil rights lawyer being the DA in such a large city. This is awesome stuff. Uh, out of Rhode Island, our next entry in politicians behaving badly in Providence, a Republican state senator has been arrested for extorting a male page for sex. Uh, so pages are basically a little like gophers. They're typically high school kids or middle school kids, and they go fetch coffee or fetch papers and whatever else, and it's supposed to give them a exposure to how the legislative system works. Well, from the story, it says, quote, State Senator Nicholas Kettle was charged Monday with extorting sex from a teenage statehouse page in 2011, the year he became the youngest senator in Rhode Island history. Appearing in court for the first time since his arrest by state police Friday, Kettle was brought before a Superior Court magistrate in handcuffs and pleaded not guilty to two counts of extortion. A grand jury indictment unsealed Monday accuses Kettle, a 27-year-old Coventry Republican, of twice coercing a Senate student page to have sex with him in 2011. The indictment accused Kettle of threatening to injure the page or harm his reputation if he did not comply. Now, you might be wondering... Why is this just now coming up if this is from 2011? Why did it take seven years? Well, you get the impression that Senator Kettle is a repeat offender uh, because, quote, Kettle was arrested Friday at his job in Richmond on a charge of video voyeurism. The state police say was a result of him sharing pornographic images of his now ex-girlfriend. State police also seized more than a dozen mobile phones, computers, and hard drives from Kittle's home and office. 
So we've talked previously about how when police are executing a search warrant for one thing, if they find other things in the process, they could be prosecuted for that too. I will bet my next paycheck that when they took these mobile phones, computers, and hard drives, they went through them and they found evidence for this 2011 crime. Uh, so that's in Rhode Island and South Carolina out of Columbia. More politicians behaving badly. Good news, if you're a South Carolina listener, all crime has been solved in your state uh, because now legislators are trying to make it a crime to sag your pants. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a proposed state law is looking to establish monetary fines and community service for people who get caught sagging their pants in South Carolina. Representative Wendell Gilliard, who is a Democrat from Charleston, co-sponsored House Bill 4957. Uh, the bill is predominantly sponsored by Democrats, eight, and there is also at least one Republican. Uh, Gilliard said, quote, We have to lead by example. It is necessary because it's not getting any better. The pants now are being worn below the knees. Now look, I, I've dealt with clients who like to sag their pants. I've yet to see anyone wear anything below their knees because frankly, at that point, you can't fucking walk. But yes, let's definitely solve this problem by giving police even more opportunities to interact with black men. That's going to go over real fucking well. South Carolina politicians are idiots. Out of Tennessee, our next entry in politicians behaving badly. Like, it's just a weird fucking week for politicians. Out of Nashville... Mayor Megan Barry, who also happens to be a Democrat, has been caught on video boning her security guard in a cemetery. Ugh. But on top of that, the security guard was getting paid overtime for the sex sessions. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Mayor Megan Barry found time alone with her police bodyguard during early morning visits to the Nashville City Cemetery. Security video uncovered by News Channel 5 shows. And in every case, taxpayers were paying Sergeant Rob Forrest to be there. At the time, Forrest was having an affair with Barry. Ever since the mayor's admission of a two-year affair with her police bodyguard, she has adamantly defended the overtime paid to Forrest, insisting that every hour billed to taxpayers was legitimate. I bet it was. Uh, out of Texas and Amarillo. And, this, you know, I, I don't know if I can create a rule of fisk for this, but there are just some things that are so stupid that I feel like they should be a rule. Like, it, it's just stupid. Just stupid. So... A gunman entered the Faith City Mission and took hostages. So this is the scenario. You have 100 people being taken hostage. A student at the mission somehow decided that he was not going to put up with this and actually wrestled the gunman and got the gun away from him. So when police arrived, rather than figure out what was going on, they just went ahead and shot the student. From the story, it says, quote, The Amarillo Police Department is investigating the circumstances surrounding an officer-involved shooting Wednesday morning in which a Faith City Mission student was wounded while in possession of a gun he wrestled away from a suspect. Police said the initial call just before 9 a.m. referenced an armed suspect holding approximately 100 people hostage in the mission's chapel. The Special Crimes Unit investigators believe that responding officers entered at two entrances to the building and came into contact with the Faith City Mission student with a gun in his hand. One or more officers fired shots at the student. The student was hit and taken to a local hospital by ambulance. That's got to be nice. You actually saved the day, and your reward for it is getting shot by the people that make their money from your tax dollars. Uh, out of Harris County, Texas, that's the Houston area, 
a judge has now decided to instruct all magistrates uh, to violate state law. That they're going to deny no cash bail to anybody who supports Black Lives Matter. Uh, State District Judge Michael McSpadden, who is uh, characterized as, quote, a long-serving jurist in Harris County, uh, said he didn't trust lower-level jurists, those are the magistrates, not to make errors. Almost everybody we see here has been tainted. They're not good risks. The young black men charged with felony offenses, they're not getting good advice from their parents. Who do they get advice from? Ragtag organizations like Black Lives Matter, which tell you to resist police, which is the worst thing in the world you could tell a young black man. Black Lives Matter teaches contempt for the police, for the whole justice system. Well, with people like you in charge, yeah, I'd have contempt for the justice system too, quite frankly. Uh, In Needville, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston, Superintendent Curtis Rhodes of the Needville Independent School District has promised that he's going to punish students if they do any protesting at all about gun control. So that is the reason for this particular Law 140. Uh, We're going to talk more about that story in a moment. Out of Vermont in Burlington, students at the University of Vermont protested last week linking arms to block Main Street during rush hour traffic, and the police didn't intervene. And folks were very concerned. Why is the police, uh, you know, why are they letting this happen? Why are we letting these hippies actually, you know, engage in protected conduct? And the police department issued a statement that was surprisingly strong in defense of civil disobedience. It's a lengthy statement. Not going to read you the whole thing, but I'm going to read you a couple paragraphs because I was very shocked. I was quite surprised by the tone. It's very strident. What they say is, quote, last night, a group of approximately 100 University of Vermont students blocked traffic on Main Street during rush hour. The Burlington Police Department made the decision to allow the protest to continue. Protesters were otherwise highly cooperative and respectful. The protest concluded with no arrests or incidents. Like speeding or making excessive noise, blocking traffic is a violation of the law that police officers have the discretion to enforce based on their experience, judgment, and the totality of the circumstances. When the reason people are blocking traffic is to engage in political protest on matters of great interest to the community, officers are required to be judicious in the use of their powers to remove protesters from the road. Exercising that power to remove protesters can be seen as the state using force to stifle political speech under the color of enforcing what is otherwise a minor violation of the law. The police department rejects the idea that it has an automatic obligation to put an end to any protest that employs civil disobedience. Similar traffic delays have been caused by fatal accidents, hazardous spills, the Independence Day fireworks display, the Champlain Valley Expo, and the snow. Democratic expression is at least as compelling as any of these causes of delay. Protesters in Burlington do not have a history of blocking traffic or engaging in civil disobedience with any frequency, doing so on occasion and on matters that are occupying the attention of the community and nation does not always require police intervention. Hallelujah. Sounds like a department gets it. Now, I don't know enough about how Burlington police do things on a regular basis. I'm not sure if this is just a one-off to get the media attention, but if this is how they actually conduct themselves, kudos to the Burlington, Vermont Police Department. Uh, In Virginia, there's a new study out showing that in Charlottesville, blacks are 284% more likely than similarly situated whites to be stopped and frisked without any reason at all. 
from the story. It says, quote, since July 2012, the Charlottesville Police Department has kept voluntary data on street detentions and stop question and frisk actions. The formatting of the data has changed from year to year, but the gist of what's recorded remains the same. Location, reason for the stop, and race of the individual. The information collected is only for stops that do not result in arrests. The most recent available data, from January 1st to December 11th of 2017, shows 123 street detentions without arrests for a variety of reasons, ranging from narcotics investigation to suspicious circumstance. Of those stopped, 73% were black, even though only 19% of Charlottesville residents are black. Uh, So that's it for the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery. Every now and again, we do cover stories in other countries, and we actually have three of them this time. Uh, Canada gets two. So for Canada, the first rule of Fisk in Toronto, uh, on Sunday, an unidentified male was attempting to exit a streetcar near a given intersection uh, when he was grabbed by a fair inspection officer. The uh, male was described as a black teenager, was allegedly shoved, sorry, I'm misreading this, he allegedly shoved the officer who grabbed him. So officer sees a black kid, wants to verify that he'd actually paid for his trip. He shoves the officer in response. Uh, One of the witnesses said, quote, I did not hear anyone ask the young man for proof of payment before grabbing him. Two officers removed the teenager from the streetcar and pinned him to the ground, putting him in handcuffs. The kid did not resist arrest. Three police officers then joined the fair inspection officer. So you now got five officers total on this kid uh, to hold him down. And, of course, this is all on video. So you have the teenager screaming, I didn't do anything. You're hurting me. And they held him down for 20 minutes before they took him to the police car. And the Toronto police later told the Toronto Star that no criminal charges were filed. So they basically just took this black kid off of the uh, street. I don't know what the streetcar is referring to. Is that like a trolley? I'm not Canadian, so I don't actually know. I don't know if this is a trolley or a subway or what. I guess it can't be a subway because it's a streetcar, but I'm assuming it's a trolley. My experience in Toronto was limited. When I was there, I was downtown, and it was cold and apparently they have like this entire underground mall that connects all of the buildings so i never had to go outside like it was glorious um but that's in toronto in the york region i don't know where that is uh, but the york regional police of canada have had to issue a tweet clarifying that smoking weed does not in fact make you grow breasts Uh, from the story it says quote at a meeting last week at its aurora headquarters The York Catholic School Board gathered students to give them a chance to ask experts about drugs, with recreational marijuana becoming legal this particular summer. Representatives from York Regional Police, Public Health, and the Center for Addiction and Mental Health were there to discuss the effects of pot use. Nigel Cole, a drug recognition officer with the York Regional Police, is quoted in the transcript as telling students, Quote, there are studies that marijuana lowers your testosterone. We call it doobies make boobies. We're finding 60% of 14-year-olds are developing boobies. Now, just as an aside, if you couldn't tell, and this is mentioned in the article, that's all complete and total bullshit. Because mammary glands 
are developed as part of estrogen. So even if your testosterone was lowered, it wouldn't increase your estrogen to make you grow boobies. And there's absolutely no evidence of any kind at all whatsoever that 60% of 14-year-olds are developing boobies as a result of weed use. That's just, it's so fucking stupid. Uh, So the police, to their credit, issued a tweet that was partly tongue-in-cheek. It says, quote, we're no health experts, but we're pretty sure getting high does not cause enhanced memory growth in men. We are aware of the misinformation about cannabis that was unfortunately provided to the community by our officers. We're working to address it. Uh, So those are the two stories out of Canada. And then Israel. I think this is a debut for the country of Israel. Uh, (laughs) There's a corrupt judge that is now facing disciplinary action. So as, as a backdrop, there's political news about the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, being accused of corruption. I don't know the details. I don't fully grasp Israeli politics. I just remember seeing a notification on my phone and scrolling past the headline. Uh, But long story short, there's a corruption case pending involving a lot of associates of the prime minister. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, a judge presiding over hearings in a major corruption case asked to be removed from her duties after Channel 10 Media exposed that she had coordinated rulings with a government lawyer working the hearing. Judge Runit Poznanski-Katz reportedly exchanged WhatsApp messages with the legal advisor of the Israel Securities Authority, Aaron Sham Shavit, regarding how long to keep suspects in this particular corruption scandal under arrest. We will ask for a few more days, wrote Shavit, but you can give us two. I will have to look really, really surprised, wrote the judge. So just know that judges uh, engaging in ex parte communications with lawyers isn't just limited to the United States. Uh, So folks, that is the criminal justice fuckery for this week. Let's go ahead and jump into our Law 140 about the First Amendment rights of school kids. So I mentioned briefly in the state-by-state justice news for Texas that Curtis Rhodes is the superintendent for the Needville Independent School District, and he basically threatened to punish any students if they do any protesting of any kind. He posted a lengthy letter on the school district's Facebook page uh, that, among other things, says, quote, please be advised that the Needville ISD will not allow a student demonstration during school hours for any type of protest or awareness, exclamation point, exclamation point. A school is a place to learn and grow educationally, emotionally, and morally. A disruption of the school will not be tolerated. Now, the Facebook page has since been taken down because, of course, people were slightly up in arms about that, but it prompted a lot of questions. Are the actions of the superintendent and the school district constitutional? Well, the short answer is we don't know because the Facebook page itself, it's just a statement. They haven't actually taken any concrete action against anybody or adopted an actual policy or anything like that. But it does give us a chance to kind of go over the history of student free speech rights. Uh, And hopefully that can give you some context for evaluating it in the future. But before I get into that, I need to point out that 
uh, Ken White, who writes for popat.com. I've talked about him on several podcasts. I rely on a lot of his insight for a lot of these things. He has started a podcast of his own. It's entitled Make No Law about the First Amendment. And the second episode is on this topic. He actually interviews Mary Beth Tinker, who you're going to hear more about in a minute. Uh, So I want to say give that podcast a listen before you continue with this. Uh, because it's very well polished, it does an excellent job, and he covers a lot of the same case law, frankly, better than you're going to hear from me, because his voice is fit for radio and podcasting, and mine is more designed for print. Uh, But remember, the second rule of FISC, you start at the source whenever you're looking at a statute or a constitutional provision. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, we've mentioned previously this amendment has been incorporated against the states via the 14th Amendment. I'm not going to go into that into too much detail. Just trust me that it's true. Uh, But the interesting part is that for most of the country's history, uh, basically school children were seen and not heard. So I found a law review article that looked from 1658 to 1966, so basically covering British courts and American courts, what they found was that there were only nine appellate cases of any kind that related to students' rights to speak. So none of those reached the Supreme Court. Now, they relate, there were some that related to other freedoms. So like we've talked about West Virginia versus Barnett on whether the government can compel students to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, but none of them related to students' speech rights. Now, that changed starting in the 1960s. So remember, you've got the civil rights movement going on, and there were two cases decided by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on the same day. One of them was Burnside versus Byers. The other one is Blackwell versus the Issaquena Board of Education. Now, for both of these, the facts are substantively similar. They related to what were called freedom buttons which were basically all black buttons that students wore to protest segregation. The principal at each school saw them, ordered that they were removed, the students refused. Now, in the case of the Blackwell case, there's additional evidence that the students who wore the buttons were chronically harassed the students who did not and try and force them into wearing the buttons. Whereas in the Burnside case, there's no evidence of that type of harassment. So what you found is that the Fifth Circuit decided in Blackwell that removing the buttons was permissible, but in Burnside that it was not. And in the Burnside majority opinion, it says, quote, with all of this in mind, we must also emphasize that school officials cannot ignore expressions of feelings with which they do not wish to contend. They cannot infringe on their students' right to free and unrestricted expression as guaranteed to them under the First Amendment to the Constitution, where the exercise of such rights in the school buildings and school rooms do not materially and substantially interfere with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the operation of the school. The last part of that sentence is the magic language. As long as it does not materially and substantially interfere, then it's permissible. So fast forward three years to Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District in 1969. So this involves the Vietnam War, and Mary Beth Tinker and her brother and some of their friends were wearing black armbands at the school 
to protest the war and to support a truce. Well, the end result ended up being a very expansive opinion, strongly supporting the rights of students. So it was a 7-2 decision by the Supreme Court. Justice Abe Fortas wrote the opinion. And what he says is several passages I'm going to read you, including, quote, the wearing of armbands and the circumstances of this case was entirely divorced from actually or potentially disruptive conduct by those participating in it. It was closely akin to pure speech, which we have repeatedly held is entitled to comprehensive protection under the First Amendment. First Amendment rights, applied in light of the special characteristics of the school environment, are available to teachers and students. It can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. Under our Constitution, free speech is not a right that is given only to be so circumscribed that it exists in principle but not in fact. Freedom of expression would not truly exist if the right could be exercised only in an area that a benevolent government has provided as a safe haven for crackpots. The Constitution says that Congress and the states may not abridge the right to free speech. This provision means what it says. We properly read it to permit reasonable regulation of speech-connected activities in carefully restricted circumstances. But we do not confine the permissible exercise of First Amendment rights to a telephone booth or the four corners of a pamphlet or to supervised and ordained discussion in a school classroom. The record does not demonstrate any facts which might reasonably have led school authorities to forecast substantial disruption of or material interference with school activities, and no disturbances or disorders on the school premises in fact occurred. These petitioners merely went about their ordained rounds in school. Their deviation consisted only in wearing on their sleeve a band of black cloth not more than two inches wide. They wore it to exhibit their disapproval of the Vietnam hostilities and their advocacy of a truce to make their views known and, by their example, to influence others to adopt them. They neither interrupted school activities nor sought to intrude in the school affairs or the lives of others. They caused discussion outside of the classrooms, but no interference with work and no disorder. In the circumstances, our Constitution does not permit officials of the state to deny their form of expression." Very expansive, really awesome opinion. It was taught to me when I was in grade school because that's how pivotal it was. Well, what you found essentially is the Supreme Court wildly backtrack ever since. Uh, so the next case on student speech rights is Bethel School District number 403 versus Fraser, which is from a 1986 case. And basically a student gave a speech to an assembly of 600 other students, nominating his friend to be vice president of the student government. And as part of that speech, uh, so it, let's do this. I'm going to give you how the majority opinion describes it, and then I'm going to give you how the concurrence describes it. Uh, from the majority opinion, it says, quote, on April 26th of 1983, the respondent, a student at Bethel High School in Pierce County, Washington, delivered a speech nominating a fellow student for student elective office. Approximately 600 school students, many of whom were 14-year-olds, attended the assembly. Students were required to attend the assembly or to report to study hall. During the entire speech, Fraser referred to his candidate in terms of an elaborate, graphic, and explicit sexual metaphor. 
During Fraser's delivery of the speech, a school counselor observed the reaction of students to it. Some students hooted and yelled. Some, by gestures, graphically simulated the sexual activities pointedly alluded to in respondent's speech. Other students appeared to be bewildered and embarrassed. One teacher reported that on the day following the speech, she found it necessary to forego a portion of the scheduled class lesson in order to discuss the speech with the class. So that is how the court has phrased it. Now, here is what was actually said. I know a man who is firm. He's firm in his pants. He's firm in his shirt. His character is firm. But most of all, his belief in you, the students of Bethel, is firm. Jeff is a man who takes his point and pounds it in. If necessary, he'll take an issue and nail it to the wall. He doesn't attack things in spurts. He drives hard, pushing and pushing until finally he succeeds. Jeff is a man who will go to the very end, even the climax, for each and every one of you. So vote for Jeff for vice president. He'll never come between you and the best our high school can be. Now, obviously, it's referring to sex acts great, but crude and explicit, come on. Well, anyhow, as a result of this speech, Frazier was suspended for two days and filed suit. The district court upheld the suspension, said there was no First Amendment violation. The Court of Appeals reversed, citing Tinker, saying, in fact, no, this was a speech and it was fine. Well, a 7-2 decision by the Supreme Court decided to reverse the appellate court and go back to upholding the suspension. And boy, the Supreme Court was not happy about the Court of Appeals in that particular case. Uh, so from the opinion, it says, quote, this court acknowledged in Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District that students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. The Court of Appeals read that case as precluding any discipline of Frazier for indecent speech and lewd conduct in the school assembly. That court appears to have proceeded on the theory that the use of lewd and obscene speech in order to make what the speaker considered to be a point in a nominating speech for a fellow student was essentially the same as the wearing of an armband in Tinker as a form of protest or the expression of a political position. So he then goes on and talks about the history of manners and civility and a bunch of other hippy-dippy bullshit that really just... You wouldn't expect from Berger, frankly. Well, I guess you might, depending on how much, uh, you know, your view of him. It doesn't seem something that I would expect to see in a Supreme Court opinion because it's not law. You know, the history of civility is not law. It's a social construct. Um, anyhow, so the court continues, quote, We hold that Petitioner School District acted entirely within its permissible authority in imposing sanctions upon Frazier in response to his offensively lewd and indecent speech. Unlike the sanctions imposed on the students wearing armbands in Tinker, the penalties imposed in this case were unrelated to any political viewpoint. The First Amendment does not prevent the school officials from determining that to permit a vulgar and lewd speech, such as respondents, would undermine the school's basic educational mission. A high school assembly or classroom is no place for a sexually explicit monologue directed towards an unsuspecting audience of teenage students. Again, it wasn't sexually explicit. You need to go read what the word explicit means. Uh, accordingly, it was perfectly appropriate for the school to disassociate itself to make the point to the pupils that vulgar speech and lewd conduct is wholly inconsistent with the fundamental values of public school education. So that was in 86. And then in 88, in the case of Hazelwood School District versus Kuhlmeyer, you end up with even a, an even further retreat. 
So in the other one, in Frasier, you're talking about a speech at a school assembly. So it's a student activity on the campus. Uh, well, in Kuhlmeyer, you're talking about a school newspaper. So they had the school newspaper called The Spectrum that ran every couple weeks. And in one particular issue, there were two stories, one on teen pregnancy and one on how divorce impacted students. And the administrators decided that those pieces needed to be deleted, that they could not be in the student newspaper, and the students sued, saying that's not right. Well, once again, very similar procedural uh, chain. The district court decided that the actions did not violate the First Amendment. The appellate court reversed, said, hey, look at Tinker. This absolutely violates the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-3 to three decision, said, no, in fact, it does not. So Byron White wrote this particular opinion, and he starts out detailing at length all of the time and money that the school district puts into helping publish the paper, basically arguing that the paper is an appendage of the school. And they also talk about whether or not the newspaper is a public forum. So we've talked about what's called forum analysis in First Amendment cases in a prior episode. Uh, and they conclude that it is not a public forum because it's not something open to anyone to contribute as they see fit. It is, in fact, part of the government. So in the opinion... Justice White writes, quote, The question whether the First Amendment requires a school to tolerate particular student speech, the question that we addressed in Tinker, is different from the question whether the First Amendment requires a school affirmatively to promote particular student speech. The former question addresses educators' ability to silence a student's personal expression that happens to occur on the school premises. The latter question concerns educators' authority over school-sponsored publications, theatrical productions, and other expressive activities that students, parents, and members of the public might reasonably perceive to bear the imprimatur of the school. These activities may fairly be characterized as part of the school curriculum, whether or not they occur in a traditional classroom setting so long as they are supervised by faculty members and designed to impart particular knowledge or skills to student participants and audiences. Educators are entitled to exercise greater control over this second form of student expression to assure that participants learn whatever lessons the activity is designed to teach, that readers or listeners are not exposed to material that may be inappropriate for their level of maturity, and that the views of the individual speaker are not erroneously attributed to the school. Hence, a school may, in its capacity as publisher of a school newspaper or producer of a school play, disassociate itself not only from speech that would substantially interfere with its work or impinge upon the rights of other students, but also from speech that is, for example, ungrammatical, poorly written, inadequately researched, biased or prejudiced, vulgar or profane, or unsuitable for immature audiences. We hold that educators do not offend the First Amendment by exercising editorial control over the style and content of student speech in school-sponsored expressive activities, so long as their actions are reasonably related to legitimate pedagogical concerns. So that brings you to 2007 and Morse v. Frederick. So you've got Tinker v. Des Moines, this landmark case. And then every case that has come after it, Frazier, Kuhlmeyer, the Supreme Court has been retreating quickly. Well, in 2002, 
The Olympics were in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Olympic torch went through Juneau, Alaska. And the uh, the torchbearers went along a street that happened to be in front of the Juno Douglas High School. And it was while school was in session, so the school arranged basically a quasi-field trip. You weren't on school grounds. You were at the street in front of the school grounds. And while this was going on, a student named Joseph Frederick, as the torch was going by, him and his friends unveiled a banner that said, Bong Hits for Jesus. And there's testimony at the trial that it was just some nonsense that he was putting together to try and get the television cameras. He wasn't actually advocating for marijuana use. Uh, But the principal confiscated the banner and suspended Frederick for 10 days. And she justified her actions by saying it was school policy uh, to not display any material that promotes the use of illegal drugs. So you might notice a recurring theme here. The district court decided that there was no constitutional violation. The Court of Appeals reversed and said, hey, look at Tinker. This violates school speech. It's not, on, it's not within the school violating community standards as it was in Frazier. It's not related to anything pedagogical like it was with Kuhlmeyer. Surely this falls within the Tinker uh, aura. Well, surprise. You ended up with a 5-4 decision by the Supreme Court that said, nope, we're going to go ahead and uphold this punishment. So the opinion was written by Chief Justice Roberts. He basically rehashes Tinker and Frazier and Kuhlmeyer. I'm not going to bother giving you any of the excerpts because it's a useless opinion. They spend a lot of time whining about drug use and how marijuana is bad and a bunch of other silly shit that frankly doesn't belong in a Supreme Court opinion. Uh, The key point is, quote, we hold that schools may take steps to safeguard those entrusted to their care from speech that can reasonably be regarded as encouraging illegal drug use. We conclude that the school officials in this case did not violate the First Amendment by confiscating the pro-drug banner and suspending the student responsible for it. You also had a concurrence by Justice Thomas, who just wants to overrule Tinker entirely. He doesn't think any rights uh, exist for school kids. And then you also had, on the other side, a concurrence by Justice Alito that was like, yeah, we get it, we're, we're gutting Tinker, but this only applies to drug cases, I promise. Uh, it's stupid. The entire opinion is stupid. Uh, so what you have now, as far as actual like trying to analyze what is going on, is basically three separate and independent tests that can be applied. So the first is the Tinker test. Does it pose a substantial threat of disruption to the school? If it does, it can be prohibited. You then have the Fraser test. Is it offensive to prevailing community standards or the basic educational mission of the school? And then you have the Kuhlmeyer test, which is, is it something that is part of the, uh, is it an appendage of the school? Is it part of the curriculum? Is it part of the activities that the school could be uh, reasonably seen as given its blessing to so that any messages that are transmitted in that capacity could be interpreted as coming from the school as opposed to the students. If any of those three apply, it can be prohibited. So in practice, going back to this whole question of Texas, of can they punish students for protesting about gun control or Parkland, Florida, uh, the answer is most likely, yes, they can. uh, But theoretically, we're assuming that Tinker v. Des Moines is still good law, 
the students could presumably engage in some form of non-disruptive expressive speech like wearing armbands or lapel pins or something like that so long as no one is actually disrupted. Uh, the state of free speech rights for school kids is in pretty dire straits, which is particularly disappointing coming from the John Roberts court, because if you look at all of the First Amendment decisions that have been decided since he took over, uh, the court as a whole has been very, very strongly protective of free speech rights for adults. It just happens that kids are still getting the short end of the stick. Uh, So folks, that concludes the Law 140 for this particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it, maybe learned a little something. And with that brings us to the end of the entire episode of Fiskamall. If you liked what you heard, please do me a favor and leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your other app of choice. Please tell a friend to give us a listen so we can continue boosting the subscriber numbers. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you so much for listening, and I hope all of you have a blessed week. I'll talk to you next Monday. Thank you.